Amelia, you may have one cookie. It's so funny because these people are looking at me like, oh my God, she did not just say that to the congressman. <laughs> we got to address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast from Red, Wine, and Blue. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rachel Vindman. I'm Jasmine Clark. I'm Amanda Weinstein. And you're listening to the Suburban Women Problem. Suburban women have been an important voting block for a while, and that was definitely the case in last year's midterms. But as we've discussed, Gen Z also played a key role in the midterms, which I think surprised some people because supposedly young people don't vote. I think the takeaway is that it's going to take a coalition of generations. We all have to come together if we want to defeat right-wing extremism. This week, I got to interview Annie Wu, the young woman who ran the social media for John Betterman's Senate campaign. And before that, we'll be joined by a mom and her Gen Z daughter who work for change together. So before we jump into the news, I thought it might be fun to ask you guys, what were you like when you were in your 20s? Did you care about politics yet? And what did you think you were going to do with your life? When I was in my 20s, I wasn't into politics. I did vote, though. I did vote. I think I voted ever since I was old enough to vote. Um, I think the first person I voted for was John Kerry. It might have been someone else, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was John Kerry. Um, he did not win. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I've I've always been a voter, but I pretty much think that was the extent of my politics. I didn't really think that I would ever actually become a state legislator. I know that much. That was never in any of my 5, 10, 15, or 20-year plans. <laughs> but here I am. So I definitely will say uh, when I look at younger people today, they just seem a lot more involved and into it mm -hmm. than I definitely mm -hmm. was, especially in college. Like we all voted, but that was like, that was pretty much it. Yeah. Oh, I was probably uh, the geek most would expect. Um, honor student. I did run for student council, but especially for our new listeners, um, I was probably not the politically active person you would expect. So I was raised by conservative evangelicals. Um, being pro-life was big in my household. I wrote a heartbeat bill in my high school social science class. It did not pass in that class. I was very disappointed by that at the time. Um, so my politics and my conservatism are probably one reason why I went to the U.S. Air Force Academy for college. It turns out once I got around a lot of more conservative people, then I really started to be like, no, like I didn't think they felt the freedom of religion that I felt should be in our constitution. And I was like, okay, no, you're not my people. That's interesting. Yeah, I know. So, so I do still feel like an evangelical and conservative, but I feel like that's why I vote for Democrats. I love that. Mm. I love how like your conservatism like brought you to a place to realize that you are actually not a conservative. So when I was in eighth grade, I ran for art director of the pep club, which was an elected position. I love that. And I did not get it. But there were two positions on the pep club leadership. There were appointed positions. And I got one of those. And then I was awarded officer of the year <laughs> from my appointed position. And I'm not sure what all of this says, but there's something there. Like if you don't get elected, then you get appointed. You can still do a good job. I don't know. But anyway, my my politics is I always want to talk about politics. 
and no one in my family really wanted to talk about politics with me. But my daughter complains that we talk about politics too much and she wants to talk about TikTok. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess you always want what you don't have. But I did always vote and that was pretty much the extent of it. And the first presidential election I voted for was Bill Clinton. And did you vote for Bill Clinton? I did. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Dang. but I, I, I had to drive home um, from college and then I drove back. And the next day, I remember like my sorority sisters, uh, one of them was from her parents were small business owners and they were so upset. And it was the first time I'd ever thought about that. I also thought she has no idea what she's talking about because she's an 18 year old college student like me and she's just parroting what her parents have said. And I mean, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that because what 18 year old understands taxes. No, I don't think most people understand taxes. No, I mean, but you just see the pervasiveness of this attitude. I really struck me at the time of like, okay, so as soon as a Democrat gets elected, the automatic, like the place that people jump to was it's going to be bad for taxes for individual, like, you know, small business owners and individuals. And like, he, he wasn't an incumbent. So no one had any idea what his tax policy was going to be, but it was just like the automatic, you know, assumption and that those things, I don't know why, but they, they still stick. Obviously I remember it really well. Um, and, and so we have these real misconceptions and it, it's hard even now for Democrats with policy to get around this idea, because even if you do pay taxes, if you get something for the taxes and it, it saves you money elsewhere, mm-hmm. then isn't it worth it? Like a road. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Imagine I mean, having to drive around without roads, how much maintenance you would have to do on your car as you were driving over boulders and sticks. So um, I did want to talk about, I mean, I think we, we have to discuss what happened in Memphis. Oh, I did watch the video right before recording. Have you seen the video? I did not. I have I have decided that I will not watch it. I I have enough context and I have enough historical context to know uh, what I'm dealing with. And I don't necessarily think I need to to view it. Speaking of which, what happened in Georgia with that, Jasmine? Because I I know the governor called out the National Guard and it seemed like it was sort of out of left field. But so. In Georgia, we had our own set of uh, law enforcement involved shootings where um, our Georgia State Patrol um, shot an environmentalist who was protesting the formation of this place called Cop City. It's like a cop training center. Um, But in order to make this place, they're cutting down all these trees in a place that really doesn't have a lot of trees. So it's like, you know, it's a big deal from an environmental perspective. And so there have been these protesters that have been protesting the cutting down of the trees. And there was like a sweep of the area. And from the cops point of view, because that's the only point of view that we have, they say that they encountered this individual, the individual shot at them, they shot him, he's dead. So we don't have his point of view. There are zero body cams, so there is no video whatsoever. Why? Our Georgia State Patrol is not required to wear body cams. There's a lot right there. There is a lot of uh, unrest in just the lack of accountability, a lack of transparency. So anyway, there was rioting associated with that. You know, the rioting went on for a couple of days and then it kind of calmed down. 
But then all of a sudden, a few days later, the governor calls the National Guard into Georgia and says, you know, he he says there's a state of emergency a day before the video is expected to come out. And so it's pretty much understood that that National Guard was not for the riots that had happened previously, but something that they were doing to prevent riots happening once that video came out. But the truth is, there were no riots. Uh, There were protests. All the protests were peaceful. And I think one of the reasons why that was is because unlike many of these officer-involved shootings or killings, murders of unarmed civilians, this one, the cops actually were arrested, indicted, charged, you know, all those things immediately. And so we have something to point to justice being served. Now, I have my own opinions about how uh, interesting it is that justice was served so quickly this time when, you know, we saw something very similar with George Floyd and it took a whole lot longer for something that I mean, eventually happened. What, what is why do you what is your theory? I mean, I just think when you're dealing with cops of color, black cops, it's easier to throw them in jail when a black cop harms a black person than it is to throw a white cop in jail that harms a black person. And I think there's enough data out there to support that. But I just want to say as a black mom, I'm devastated because I'm a lawmaker. It's my job to make laws. And I just don't know how we legislate ourselves out of a culture that says it is okay to treat any human being that way. Watching those videos, I see my son. The fact that he called out for his mom, I see my son. And I just can't figure out for the life of me how anyone could perpetuate that type of violence on another human being unless you don't see them as human. Mm -hmm. You see them as something less than human that you can treat that way. I mean, so... I watched the video because I wanted to be knowledgeable when we talked about it today. And I don't think everyone has to watch it to be knowledgeable, but it is bad. And you see exactly what I think the police chief said. You see a blatant disregard for the humanity of a person Mm -hmm. that was just houses away from his mother's house. And you actually hear the reporter watching it, the video, the same time they're showing it to you. And the reporter is choking back tears as he is trying to explain what we're watching. And they're, you know, all of this stuff. You know, I've read um, books that really talk about dehumanization. And I've read books that talk about how you use dehumanization to get a society to be okay with these acts of violence, slaves were dehumanized. If they're animals, it's okay to treat them that way. The Nazis basically took a page out of the book from America and used dehumanization to say, it's okay to treat Jews that way because they're not human. We have got to get to a place where we can look at another human being, no matter what their skin color looks like and see a human being you know, for me to know that I can walk out of this building and there are people who will know who I am, they'll know my credentials and they'll say, oh, you know, that's that's Jasmine or that's Representative Clark or that's Dr. Clark. But there are people out there that won't see me as anything other than a Black person who is less than. How do we get past that in our society? And I, I don't know the answer. It's just something that's been on my mind. It's on my mind every time one of these things comes out. 
And how do we stop this from happening? And again, I don't have answers. Um, But one of the things I will say when it comes to this whole subject and kind of bringing back the subject of Gen Z, I feel like the younger people in our society, they are looking at things a lot different. Yeah. They do see the humanity in their peers. They do. In a way that I feel like a lot of these adults are just failing at. Well, they failed for a long time. I think Gen Z is like, dude, um, how long guys can talk about the same thing? You want to maybe yeah. do something <laughs> about it? I mean, yes. And and do you blame them? Because it's just like, even the things that my daughter, when we talk to her about things and she's like, why is it like that? How long has it been like that? And we say, and we tell her and she's like, why hasn't anyone changed it? And I mean, fair question. Why haven't we? And I think- you know, they they look, Gen Z is looking, saying, we have the fear of guns, and this has been going on our entire lives. Yep. The, the college and the opportunity costs to be able to, you know, to get a degree, it's huge. It's more than it was for our parents, much more for our grandparents. It's not there. Like, we cannot, this is not sustainable. And if it's going to change, we have to participate. And they are participating. And and I love that Gen Z is, and this is part of my interview that, you know, when I talk to Annie Wu, it's like, they're finding out how to be involved and not everyone can write a check. Right. And, and I mean, that goes for many of our listeners too. They can't write checks and they found ways to plug in and we have to welcome everyone to come and be part of the process and just see that everyone brings something to the table. But I do think that Gen Z is just kind of like, all right, we have to fix this now. And we're definitely at an inflection point. And and some of us, we have to humble ourselves to be led a little bit by them. And when they say that this is important to them, I mean, not that it's not important to us, but when they say this is important to them, we need to listen because this is what's going to get them involved and bring them in. And this is what they want to change. And hey, I mean, you know, but that's what we have to do is we have to listen to them. So something I saw with, over time is what typically happens in every generation is you get more conservative as you get older. Mm-hmm. We saw it with our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, but I saw data that actually our generation and younger, not true. Yes, I saw that as well. Very hopeful. Did you see that? I was like, ooh, go our generation. But I think we're also listening to our own kids. Yeah. And we're also, and you know, as parents too, we're seeing like, man, the cost of college is really expensive man, you know, getting your first house is even more expensive than it was for us that we're listening. And there's a lot of things that our kids either that, you know, we taught them or they're getting in schools, like getting at the humanity of other people, even if they're not, if they're different than them, or if they disagree with them. There are many inspiring Gen Z activists out there who keep us focused, like Annie, who I interviewed this week, but they had to learn from someone, right? So, of course, plenty of young leaders have forged their own path or been inspired by their peers, but many have gotten involved in politics because of moms like us. I hope I can actually do this one day and I don't bore my daughter continually with politics. (laughs) But this week, I, I am so excited about this. We are going to be joined by a mom and her daughter. Juanita is a judge, a veteran, and a mom in North Carolina, and her daughter Maya is a college student. Hi, Juanita and Maya. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. 
Juanita, you were elected district court judge in 2018, the first black judge to be elected in your community. I'd love to hear more about why you decided to run for office and what the experience was like. Well, 2018, I decided to run for office because there were no minorities um, judges ever in the county. And I was born and raised in Cabarrus County and actually came back to practice law here and wanted to make a difference in my community and also be that presence for other children to be able to see that they could do go on and do greater things as well. So I love it. How how often are you reelected? Four years. Did you just get reelected in 2022? Sad thing about it, I did not. And I will tell you I did not because again, I'm still the only person of color that was on the bench and our jurisdiction is um, political. So you have to put your political party. And I am the only Democrat on the bench. I was the mm. only one. And so it just so happens that my county is all red county, but that's okay. I'm seeking an appointment with the governor now. So I would like to continue on with that journey. But wow, good luck. We had that change in Ohio where we the judges had to add the DRR to their names and it totally changed a number of judges who were regularly getting elected suddenly weren't as soon as they had that D next to their name. Yes, yes. I love that you're here, Maya. I have a daughter as well. Her name is Jada. And I know when I got first elected in 2018, she was like on the campaign trail with me all the time. She used to carry around a little clipboard and she would wear a blazer and a little name tag. She's 14 now. And so things have changed a little bit. Um, But I'm very curious, uh, how did you get involved with your mom's campaign? I know that when someone runs for office, it affects the whole family. So I'm just interested, like, how did you feel about that? How was it running with your mom? Well, we got started with our, like, political campaign journey when my mom's friend was running for judge. And that was in 2010. So I was pretty young because I'm 19 now. So that was a while ago. And then I started registering people to volunteer because I saw how important it is to know who the candidate is, to know who you're voting for at a young age, to just be experienced and well-versed in your community in general. So then my mom ran in 2014, 2018, and 2022. So of course it was a big change, like you said. It was a lot of pressure because I saw like how much stress she could have been under and how much we are fighting to change what was going on in our community. But overall, it was a great experience. I love that. Yeah, I, I just, I, I think it's great to see you guys working together. And we actually have some good friends and their son is 13 and he was making calls before the midterms explaining to people what redistricting is. Our representative was running in a new area and he's just really into it. But, um, and he's actually now a page in the state Senate for six or seven weeks, like away from his family. But um Juanita, I, I want to ask you, you're, you're not just a judge, you're a mom and a veteran. How do you see those three things intersecting with each other, um, you know, or in, inspiring others? Being a judge, you see all types of people. And so, you know, we just went through COVID and um, a lot of people lost their jobs. The children were not in school. So you would see, you know, a lot of veterans who were in need of housing and I'm trying to make sure people were informed of the different legislative pieces that were out there to protect the homeless, you know, or mental health needs. People were not seeking mental health treatment as we would 
want them to be. So it was there was a lot of intersection, a lot of needs. So not just veterans, but just societal needs really came to light. It was it was difficult to um, be a judge in the, those times because you had to really change how you looked at things. Yeah, so so I'm a teacher. And one thing that I do as a teacher, when I hear things, sometimes I'll just ask my students how they're doing and how, how they're responding to something. So even, you know, the rise of remote work, I asked them one time, do you guys like remote work? They said they did not, which I thought was interesting that most people weren't talking about the fact that young people don't want to work remotely. And I still have not heard many people talk about that. So I'm wondering, Maya, from your perspective, what are things politicians aren't talking about that young people would like to hear them talking about? Or how do you get young people engaged and to be that first time voter? Like, what is it that attracts young people to do what you're doing? One thing that politicians are increasing, I've seen them doing more of, but I guess a little more that would attract Gen Z's attention is being more active on social media in general and being kept up with the new apps that are out right now like tiktok is a great platform to spread awareness and we me and my mom were doing tiktoks for her recent campaign and i saw them getting some views and i think that it's because they'll spread the information to local people you could reach anyone who's a part of gen z who's on tiktok within the area or within the state or whatever using hashtags so i think that that's a good way to reach gen z what what are you guys doing now what what are what are your main activism projects at the moment i am very much engaged in the community and as a judge i could not express things as i normally would mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so just say we just had a big martin luther king celebration and so i told them that we could not be silent And we needed to address the issues that are facing our community. And it did not pay for me to shut up. So now (laughs) I am talking. I got so many engagements after that. And so we're coming up on Black History Month and then Women's History Month. And so I'm enjoying being able to say what I want to say as a uh, Gen Xer. Go Gen X. Yay. You know, I, I, I love that Juanita. I, I just think, I think you probably saw the needs in your community from a very unique vantage point over those four years. And now you're able to go out and talk about it. And I mean, you know, I know you want to serve on the bench again, and hopefully you'll be able to, but for now, you can go out and really tell people and talk to people. And, and that is a very powerful platform to have at this moment. It is. And then even seeing people's faces and the people that are older, the baby boomers and older were coming up to hug me and saying, you, you're saying what I wish I could have said. I love it. You know, you have, the, and so, and younger people, you know, little children, you know, what did you learn about this weekend? Well, I liked it when that judge oh, was talking. I love it. <laughs> so. You guys, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so lovely. And I hope that you will inspire our listeners to do things with their kids, not just, you know, I mean, it's great for, I think, for us to, you know, all to work and what's important to us, but but to work together and find those places where we have commonality and that we can really work with our children. And because I do think that Gen X and Gen Z, there's a lot of power. We, we harness it together and millennials. I'm not leaving them out, but I mean, you know, that we can, that we can all work together um, to, to 
really make a difference. And if I may say, it has brought us closer together. I'm a divorced mom, and this is my only child. And so I'm like, baby, it's me and you forever. Aww. You know, we're team. And so we have to support each other in whatever it is. So I'm going to always be there for her. And having her show up for me brought me to tears. And so sometimes I'm at one precinct, she's at another. And I hear her say, hold on, mom. Hi, will you vote for my mom? She's this, this, this. And it was just really a blessing. And so the, I want people to be encouraged because when she was younger, she, she didn't want to really be there. But now, I mean, she was enjoying it. So if we just lay that path in front of them, they're going to do even greater than what, you know, we've done. So I tell you, I, I appreciate this baby here. Oh, that's amazing. I love it. Well, you, you guys are the cutest and uh, also very inspiring. Extremely. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having Thank us. You for having Thank me. you for what you're doing. Yeah. Now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have my interview with Annie Wu. Are you starting to see attacks on sex education in your news feeds? Do you believe sex ed is important, but you have questions about what your kids should learn and when? Do you want to be prepared to handle discussions around sex ed within your school district and with your friends? Well, we got you covered. Join us on Thursday, February 2nd for a special troublemaker training to hear from experts with Advocates for Youth and two moms who've taken a stand for sex ed in their school districts. You can find more info and sign up by going to redwine.blue or by clicking the link in the show notes. Our guest today is a content creator, a political organizer, and an expert in social media. She was incredibly successful as a social media producer for John Fetterman's Senate campaign. Annie Wu, thank you so much for joining me on the Suburban Women Problem. Yeah, excited to be here. Well, you recently said, quote, a year ago, I didn't have a plan. I just moved back to the East Coast and had saved up some money so I could try to take the plunge into politics. And now the New York Times is calling you John Fetterman's TikTok whisperer. Could you please tell us more about your journey into politics? Yeah, so I'm from the East Coast. I grew up in Pennsylvania. I studied journalism and communications and political science. So I've always been interested in politics, but wasn't necessarily sure where I was going to fit in there for like a job. And I never saw myself kind of doing the traditional interning on the Hill, going and working in that type of pathway. Mm -hmm. And so... I, you know, worked pretty traditional nine to fives in kind of the social media communication spaces, as well as like kind of getting involved in politics where I could. I worked some government affairs at the company I was at. And, you know, I was offered a job with the Biden-Harris campaign in 2020 back in PA. And it just wasn't the right time personally for me to kind of give up the stability that I had uh, to take the instability and inconsistent work in politics that makes it, in my opinion, a not really an accessible space. Yeah, that's a good point. Not even that like people don't want to hire diverse staff, mm -hmm. but like the talent pool is just not diverse because it's not accessible to people that don't have like certain privileges and and whatnot. And that's also why like people end up being the only people that end up having 
the experience to be like campaign managers or whatever by certain ages is because they were able to take a $35,000 job out of college and move to a random place because their parents could pay their rent and they were on their parents' health care and it was fine. Whereas like other people are like, I don't have those luxuries. So when I, I knew I wanted to get into it after 2020, but in a way that I felt comfortable that I was taking care of things like healthcare and stuff like that for myself. And I wanted to be involved as much as I could because of just how important I thought that this election and everything was. And I think with this, it was, I didn't want to wake up after the election and think what could I have done more, Um, especially if the outcome was not what we wanted. Um, And so I I got involved and I'm I'm happy I did. Obviously got a lot of great experience and had, had some fun along the way, met some amazing people. But at the end of the day, it was about what happened on election day. And we ultimately were able to do what, what we needed to do and what, in in my opinion, the, the country needed us to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I, I do, um, you know, I appreciate what you said about, uh, you know, you were offered jobs in politics, but it wasn't the right time. And, you know, that that security of having the job that's, you know, more in political organizing, which is something that kind of goes on all the time versus a campaign, which stops. And, you know, so a, a big part of that is healthcare. A big part of that is how our, I mean, because the way we structure healthcare is very related to our jobs. And that makes, you know, moving and doing what we want and following what we want to be very difficult. And um, you had to, you know, take that into calculus. But when you were brought on to the campaign, it was after um, Senator Fetterman had his stroke and you, you know, maintained his social media presence and worked on that. I mean, was the scope of your job impacted by his recovery? And did you kind of have to change your trajectory or your plan um, with that? Was that something that was discussed when you were hired? Obviously, it was it was a challenge that most Senate campaigns don't have to deal with. Mm-hmm and don't have to overcome. But I also think that it was something that John spoke to, and he was very transparent about. And that resonated with a lot of Pennsylvanians, but just people, because, you know, most people have had someone in their life, whether it's someone very close to them, a spouse or parent or grandparent, or God forbid, a child that they know that health challenges arise. And it's not something that's impossible, but it's something that that happens in life. And a lot of people, you know, saw that and saw that as, as something that was relatable. Yeah, for sure. Something that were that they weren't going to make fun of. So I mm-hmm. think with with all of that also came a an opportunity, um, not in a like, not using it in a gross way, but using it in a real way of this is something that obviously the Fettermans are having to, you know, John's having to recover from the family's having to support everyone's going to have to shift a little bit. But that's something that that happens in life. And that's okay. Yeah, everyone has to, you know, along with suburban women, Gen Z had a big impact on last year's midterms. But there's a narrative, you know, out there all the time that young people don't vote or young people don't care about politics. And 
we're dispelling all those myths today in this conversation, but why do you think your generation is more involved in politics and activism than young people in the past? Certainly the my generation, Gen X, we were not as involved at your age as you are, but why do you think that's the case? It, it always is confusing to me why people are shocked that Gen Z cares about their future. <laughs> I'm not actually shocked. I want to hear your answer, no, not, but I'm not, not you, shocked at but all. Yeah, just, yeah, but no. Just the pundits yeah. and people. <laughs> I mean, there are so many reasons on why Gen Z should feel dismayed and frustrated. And I think that all stems from feeling like they weren't cared about. And I'm kind of in the middle between millennial and Gen Z. And I always like, I think of the Obama era. That was a lot of people's first in the millennial generation, first election, first time getting involved in politics, whether it be 08 or, you know, 2012. But they they saw that change. They were told, you know, you're the first generation that's really going to be college educated. It, the future is yours. It, college is is very accessible to most people now. And they were given kind of this sense of hope. And I think, you know, millennials are are jaded because then, you know, the recession happened. And then after Obama era times, it immediately shifted to, you know, the other guy. Yeah. And, <laughs> blew up. and yeah. I think with Gen Z, what's different is that we didn't, you know, people didn't necessarily have that hope. People were told, you know, you can go to college, but they knew they were going to be in debt. They knew that, they were going to never be able to buy a house. Their first presidency that they were involved in or understood was 2016. And so I think the mindset is that like climate change felt like it's already going to be such an issue. They grew up going through active shooter drills, like from such a young age. And so I think there was this, like the world was never really made to help us yeah. um, from the Gen Z generation. And I get why people like, like why Gen Z's can feel really just like, what's the point. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they do have the most at stake. And I think that they have the most reason to care. It's just, again, showing them that you can be involved and showing them that their voices are important. Mm-hmm. And a lot mm-hmm. of times it's like, very much just discounting the youth and not investing into them, not giving them the resources or support as a young person. Now you have so much at your fingertips with cell phones and with the internet, but you have to get the resources and information and support to kids because kids, they are kids. They, they only (laughs) know what they know. They only can do what they can do. You know, a lot of them don't have access to cars or places. They can't Mm -hmm. just get up and go to go to things or they don't have money to donate. So you have to tell them how to get involved. And a lot of times they'll do it. You know, I say, you don't know what a phone bank is until you're told what a phone bank is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But now there's a really easy way for kids to be involved and do a phone bank. But it's getting that information and the resources mm-hmm. and support yeah, and yeah. investment to them and showing them in a an authentic way of like, we want you to be involved mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you should be. And this is yeah. this is your world that's at stake. And so... You know, I think that that is also why on the flip side, when we do those things and when we show that support, why Gen Z's are so willing to be invested, because why wouldn't you? Because you want to grow up in a world where you have opportunity and you can just not survive, but you can can live and you can thrive. And when the stakes are so high, there there is such an 
opportunity and need to care. And we just have to make that feasible. You know, social media doesn't come as naturally to my generation, uh, which is again, Gen Gen X, but uh, as it does to yours. But I mean, for some of us, I guess some are better than others that more plugged in, but it, it's, it's obviously a very powerful tool for everyone. How can our listeners use social media to help create change in their communities? The best way to connect with people is through people you know and care about and in ways that feel real. And so I think that is, you know, whether people have five followers or 500 followers or 5 million followers, you know, we all have the potential to reach those around us. And that includes social media and that includes in real life. And that just starts with conversation. And I think that starts with why we care about things. And, you know, an example, it's obviously pretty topical at the moment because of what occurred over the weekend, but with guns of that being an issue. And we, unfortunately, at this point, like so many of us have a reason why that is a personal issue. And I think it starts from talking about that and not talking in talking points that necessarily are on the news or in feeling really political, but in ways that it's yeah. like, this is, this is why it's important to me. It's, it's why so many people don't understand things about the LGBTQ community or, you know, why pronouns are important until someone in their life comes out as queer and says like, you know, I can't get married for if, if you support things like this or like, I can't adopt a child if yeah. you, mm -hmm. if these types of politicians are elected. And that is where people start to understand. No, it's a, it's in, it impacts people, it impacts people that I know, it impacts people that I care about. And I think there are issues, you know, I just used two, but like, there are so many different issues. And it includes like, you know, college tuition, afford, affording groceries, like all, all of these different things that most of us have been impacted by and talking about it. And I think mm -hmm. sharing that in, in social media and sharing little things that you're involved in or little ways that you're getting involved from, you know, going to your school board meeting to like going to a protest. It, there, there's so many different ways that we can be showing that like we care and that we're involved that feel however it's right to you. So I think that that is at the core of everything, doing what you can in a way that feels right and being able to show that in a way that's authentic and trying to get other people involved. There's so many ways to say like, I care about this or like, this is something I did. Um, I encourage you guys to do the same. And I think that that, that can make a difference because I think small, yeah. small things add up. Absolutely. And especially the personal stories. Um, you recently posted on Twitter that you were actually at a Lunar New Year celebration when you got the news about the Monterey Park shooting. Besides heartbreak, obviously, what were your thoughts when you heard that news? So I was out at Sundance. Um, I had a panel about politics and media and narrative and storytelling. And that afternoon, or I guess that evening, um, I found out I was like back in the backstage-ish area and some people were, were talking about it and they kind of said to me, they're like, did you see this? And I said, no, you know, I didn't have my phone out. I was trying to kind of be present and they're like, we're not trying to bring down the mood. So we're kind of back here do doing this stuff. And I was like, thank you for letting me know. Mm -hmm. And it was a hard place to be because so many people were mourning and grieving and coping. 
But at the same time, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else because it was such a space of community and leaning on others and, you know, having other people understand what, what you're trying to process as well. And at the same time, there was a lot of, you know, very selfless people jumping into action uh, and trying to make sure that the people on the ground out in California were getting the resources they needed, as well as, you know, the information was properly being spread. So much of that now with the digital space is making sure that what we are saying is, is correct. And we're not adding to misinformation, especially around such difficult and close to heart topics, like, like what happened. So it was interesting being in that type of space. And in a way, I think it was really healing for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been great. I, we just really appreciate you joining us today and giving us your perspective, but you know, you can't get out of here without answering our rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, we actually had Giselle Fetterman on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and she was so lovely. Can you tell us what the best part about working so closely with Giselle and John is? Well, Giselle and I are besties now. Nice. Um, actually, she te- she texted me uh, pretty early on in my time on the campaign after we had met a few times. And she was like, can we still be besties after November? And I was like, <laughs> of course, um, which we have. We kept in touch. And it makes it a lot easier to work for just good people in general. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. The, the Fettermans, John, Giselle, the kids, the parents, like everyone was just so fantastic. And they really are who you think they are. You know, I, I assumed meeting Giselle, she was going to be this kind, loving, like very bubbly person that I knew her through, you know, the interviews I had seen in her social media mm-hmm. and, and what I had heard, but she was just all of that and more. And same John was just as kind and genuine as, as I would expect. And so I think I think that and knowing, you know, politicians, especially in today's age of it being very like a lot of political theater, a lot of people just being characters to be characters, knowing that we're sending a genuine, genuine dude to the U.S. Senate to represent us that has lived the values that he says he stands for actually throughout his life Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that like that holds true through his family and and everything is just. It's a really good feeling because we don't always get that in U.S. politics. No, we do not. (laughs) I will not name names of the people who are inauthentic. I have gotten to know quite a few politicians. I will name the people who are authentic. And I have not met the Fettermans, but they they certainly strike me as authentic. And they're just a lot easier to work for and work with, I think, um, in helping people get elected. So you are a Taylor Swift fan. as am I, and made references to her songs in your campaign work. What is your favorite Taylor Swift song? Oh, this is hard. I know, like, I know. Ever. It's like unfair. It's also, I mean, like, I feel like I have to say, like, all too well, Taylor's version, 10-minute version. But there's there's so many good ones. I mean, on Midnight, there's like, like, Midnight is her most recent. And like, like I loved Antihero. And we were able to use that really like right away um, in a little TikTok that that went a little viral, which was fun. But Giselle's also a Swifty, and so it, it it worked. See, that's why Giselle's so likable and relatable. So, 
If you were elected president, what's the first piece of legislation you would pass? Well, fun fact, I can't be elected president. Not that I would want that job. Um, I wasn't, I was adopted. So I wasn't born in this country and me being like as realistic as I've always been, even when I was like, you know, seven or eight years old and people were like, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up, you can be president. I'd be like, no, I can't. Because I like, knew how the government worked just as a nerdy child. So this is really interesting. My husband is 47 yeah, and a half. And um, his dad keeps telling him that they could just change the law and he could run for president. So I really like, Annie, that you're a lot more realistic than both my husband and his father. But please, okay, let's just assume that the law is changed yeah. and you are president. So what are you going to do? I think the first thing is healthcare. I think that that is just such an important human right that we lack in this country and that hinders opportunity in so many Mm -hmm. different ways for people. And then I think the second thing I would have to do just for the sake of being able to do more would be stuff with climate change. And we can't continue to try to make this world better if we don't have a world. And so that that's just also, we need people to live. So we need healthcare and then we need the world to survive. So we need to work on that. <laughs> yes. I, those are very important and um, pretty near and dear to me as well. So uh, Annie, thank you so much for joining us on the suburban women problem. Tell us where people can find more, find out more about you and find out more about your work. Yeah. I'm very online, perpetually online, chronically online. <laughs> um, I am at, Annie, A-N-N-I-E underscore W-U, Woo, underscore 22. I am that on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Yeah. Well, we're going to look for you all those places and uh, and hear all the things because I'm, I'm sure you're going to do great things um, and use your skills to continue your work. And I, I love that you've made it your passions and your skills and made it work in politics, which is, you know, also something you like, but not in the traditional way. And more people can see that they can use their skills in a meaningful way as well. So again, thanks for joining us and good luck to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Welcome back, everyone. So, Rachel, I loved your interview with Annie, and I think um, it was actually kind of eye-opening for me because, you know, as a person who has run campaigns and um, who really did try to have a lot of different perspectives on my campaign, I understand kind of from both angles like the issues when it comes to uh, campaign jobs, because Annie was right. This is a temporary situation. Uh, It's not year round. You're basically, uh, you know, working on this campaign for a couple of months at most. Um, It usually doesn't pay a whole lot of money. And unless you get on one of the bigger campaigns, it doesn't come with any type of benefits. And so that pretty much uh, leaves the pool of eligible campaign workers to be very small as far as who can do it, not who wants to do it, but who can do it. And I would love to see campaign reforms out there that make it a lot easier for people to be able to go down that path if that's where they want to go. But I can admit as a person who is running a campaign, 
we spent almost every dollar that we raised and there was not a lot left to do things like pay for people's health insurance or, you know, all that stuff. If only we had a country with universal health care, like we could almost fix that. Sometimes when we're a little older or a little more, you know, more stable, like I've talked about before, my husband is retired from the military. So we have insurance forever and the freedom that gives us is invaluable. I wish everyone had it. It would just make it simpler. I mean, you know, it's really, oh, totally. it, like, it just, it means that it's so inefficient. It like is, if you also think is. about like, we were talking about like the small business worried about, you know, the taxes they pay, Yeah. but small businesses also have to become healthcare experts mm-hmm. right. where they pick which type of healthcare yeah. coverage they, yeah. and do you yeah. do this type or the, and right. suddenly we're asking a small business person with expertise and whatever they have expertise in to suddenly become a healthcare expert. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's not efficient. Exactly. It, it's so frustrating. Well, okay. We need to end on something happier than insurance. Although it would be, I, I think a happy, we would all have a toast of joy yes. if we had universal healthcare. Oh, sure. uh, just, Cheers. just letting you know, whoever, <laughs> man, who man, whoever manages to do that, that'll be like our group toast mm-hmm. of joy. So something to look forward to a little <laughs> extra incentive, but in the meantime, Amanda, what is your toast to joy? So today when we're recording is actually my birthday. So birthday. I'm 41. I love getting older. I'm actually not a big birthday person. Jasmine, we were talking about Jasmine is a big birthday person, but I like a little low key dinner. So I had a low key dinner with my family, which was great. Um, but also we got to take our family to the swearing in for our new Congresswoman, Amelia Sykes. And it was super cute because my daughter's name is also Amelia, spelled the same way. So in our household, we call her adult Amelia is what the congressman is called. <laughs> just so because my daughter, that's the way she's. But so we, during the whole ceremony, they were talking all these great things about Amelia. And my daughter kept saying, are they talking about me? And I was like, no, honey, they're not. But then it got kind of awkward afterwards when there was a reception and there's like cookies everywhere and treats and people couldn't. And there's so many adults people couldn't often see my daughter. And they just heard me say things like, Amelia, you may have one cookie. That is it. (laughs) And this is so funny because these people are looking at me like, oh my God, she did not just say that to the congressman. (laughs) And then they would see my daughter like, oh, your daughter's name is Amelia. I was like, yeah, sorry. I would not say that to Congressman Amelia Sykes. That's actually hilarious. (laughs) It was, it was good. I was like, Amelia, stop running. And I was like, and I was like, yeah, it was so, so it was a lot of fun, but I'm glad that my kids got to see it and they love seeing her and they get a Aww. little like starstruck seeing her and very impressed. So I'm glad that they got to see her swearing in. So my toaster joy is actually to Amelia Sykes is swearing in, which was an amazing event for the community. And she spent most of her speech talking about the importance of the public school system she went through, which is the Akron public school system. So I was really impressed that her speech was so focused on the importance of our schools for our kids. Love it. All right, Jasmine, what is your toast of joy? So my toast of joy this week, actually, I had a really rough week, like since the last time we recorded. So I was like really trying to dig deep and be like, what good happened for me? (laughs) I know that's really bad when you're in that position. Uh, But one thing I want to do, I know exactly that is good toast to that. Uh, But another thing I would say is that um, my daughter, their basketball team, uh, ended their season. And while uh, they did not make it to the championship, so that's not the joy part. Um, it was uh, my daughter is considered a quote senior in middle school because she's in eighth grade. And so it was her last middle school game oh. and they recognized them at the game and she had an um, amazing season. 
And so if you listen to the podcast for a while, you know, I'm super into sports, especially like little kids sports, especially my kids sports. And so um, I was really glad to see her blossom as a basketball player. The Jada that stepped onto the court during the first game is definitely not the same Jada that we recognized at uh, eighth grade day on Saturday. She has grown physically, like she's taller, but she has also grown as a basketball player, as an athlete, um, as a student athlete. And I just, I just love watching her blossom. So my toast of joy is to my daughter and having a quote senior in middle school. Uh, She starts high school next year. They already went to visit the school. I know. Is she nervous? She's excited. Meanwhile, mommy is like, what is happening? So yeah. All right, Rachel, what is your toast to joy? I went this weekend to Springfield, Missouri to speak at the FDR club, which is the Democrat club there in Springfield, Missouri, which is, I mean, they have an airport, but it's a bit of a rural area. And um, I spoke at the event at their annual banquet and they raised money, you know, to give to local candidates. And I just love that mission. They're, they're passionate. They talked about, the importance, the stuff we talk about, the importance of talking to their neighbors, the importance of talking to people in their community. And even though they're outnumbered and there's some crazy things going on in Missouri, it only makes them appreciate their mission more rather than, you know, wanting to give up. And there were young people there. Um, There were people from more rural counties who came. And I, I like that they were trying to work together and trying to see what they can do and, you know, trying to keep that presence alive, making sure that they always have candidates to run, that no one runs unopposed, that they have good candidates who can, you know, run a substantial campaign. I just really, I appreciated the invitation and I appreciated their commitment to this because as we talk about all the time, it doesn't end, you know, the election was in, in November, but we still have to keep fighting. We still have to keep working. So that's why We did that on a Saturday night in January, but it just kind of sets the tone for the year and to remember, hey, we're still here and we still have a lot of important work to do. Absolutely. I know that pipeline is important and it's like most politicians, even presidents start with, you know, city council and they start with a mayor and you might think like, oh, I have no desire to be, you know, president, just like Jasmine was like, never knew she'd be a state rep. Ever, ever. (laughs) Everyone starts somewhere and we need to make sure that we're paying attention to city council and school boards and state reps and all of that. That's our pipeline. And there, I, someone did mention, um, and if you are in a rural area, you might want to check this out. In addition to our podcast, it's called Heartland Pod. It's a podcast about, you know, rural areas in the heartland. And it's a little different. I mean, we're suburban women, but there's some overlap there. And- Lots of overlap. We all want our kids to do well. A lot of it, we just want our kids to do well. Yeah. Let's get our, give our kids what they need. We need we need our families to do well. Yep, absolutely. So it was it was great. But you know, everyone, thank you so much for joining us again today. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review. We will see you next week on another episode of the Suburban Women Problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red Wine and Blue. Our executive producer is Beverly Bat. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson, and our project manager is Lindsay Quist. Videos by Abigail Martin and Ashley Hufford. For more information about upcoming events and trainings, or to learn more about Red Wine and Blue, follow us on social media or at www.redwine.blue.